Friends, welcome to the last episode of the Just Follow Jesus series, at least the last of this first half of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to resume at the beginning of 2023, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, but it'll be called something different. It'll be called The Way of the Cross. That'll be kind of season two of this podcast coming out of North Coast Calvary Chapel. We're looking forward to doing that and to diving back in together. This has been a great joy to do it. And this last episode does not disappoint. This conversation with Ryan is a fun one. We kick, you'll, you'll hear, we kick it off with silly voices and um, maybe a little bit of holiday, holiday delirium. But we jump into the text in Mark chapter 8 and we explore all sorts of stuff. We talk about the significance of double healing as an example of the progressive nature of faith and maturity and healing. I reflect on one of my favorite lines of the New Testament, which is the people look like trees and how that is maybe connected in some ways to these stages of seeing or knowing faith. We spend a good bit talking about ministry of laying on hands, ministry of touch and the importance of that, how Jesus models it in some subversive ways. And that leads to probably one of my favorite parts of the conversation, which is Ryan shares a theory about Jesus spitting in the face and how that's tied up in some ways with this idea of offense being connected to God's desire to heal us and perhaps even a necessary component in that. Do we want to be well can be an offensive question when God asks us that. And we land um, on the way of suffering love about how the way of the cross as we will come to see is, uh, is not an easy one and it's one that we are averse to in so many different ways, but it, it leads to the abundant life. So friends, it has been a joy. Thanks for joining us in this first half of the Gospel of Mark, and we hope that this week's conversation, as always, encourages you, blesses you, and inspires you to go be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. Enjoy this week's conversation. Ryan. Joseph Carlson. Oh, right. What if we did this episode in in voices? This is something our listeners don't know about us, but we love to use our Irish accents. It's just silly little voices in general. Top of the morning to you, lad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why we started doing that. I don't I don't. There's either. no Irish in me, so forgive me, anyone who's Irish out there, and if I'm uh, culturally appropriating your accent, <laughs> forgive me. You know, I don't really... <laughs> but it's uh, so delightful. <laughs> it really is. You know, it's because there's something li- musical, whimsical to it. Yes, indeed. It just brings a smile to the heart and a pep in the step. A, <laughs> lot, like, this... a lot like whiskey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> edit that. <laughs> Nate, edit that. But I remember one time helping this. Did I ever tell you how I helped a woman from the grocery store to her car? This elderly lady with her groceries. And I just started talking to her and she had the most, she had the most ravishing, exquisite Irish accent. It was, I just couldn't stop and get enough of it. So I just... Walked with her all the way and helped her with her groceries and just had this extended conversation. I just kept trying to find things to ask her to keep <laughs> her talking. <laughs> At a point, I kind of realized she was looking at me like, what do you want with me? <laughs> I just want to listen to you speak. <laughs> Partly because I used, to, I used to read out loud to my kids and uh-huh. I used to integrate different accents. I guess I would listen to Braveheart clips to get my Irish accent for some characters. <laughs> a good i wanted a good irish accent so dude braveheart was scottish man not irish. that's what i meant scottish <laughs> yeah scottish but then i listened Scotland. to this woman to get that irish accent oh uh, yeah, yeah yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man if you ever and this goes for you too dear friends however many you may be who listen to this podcast um if you want to hear the most beautiful conversation and one of the most beautiful conversations i've ever listened to and just uh, an intoxicating voice, John O'Donohue, may he rest in peace, uh, incredible Irish poet and philosopher. And he had a conversation with Krista Tippett on On Being. And their conversation was titled The Inner Landscape of Beauty. Mm. And oh my gosh, there is just something about listening to that man talk. I'm like, ah, mm. why? You have to share that with me. Why? I, I, I will. Heard this. I will. Uh, maybe if I'm, if I'm really... Feeling it, I'll put the, a link to it in the show notes so that people can, you know, find it if they're listening to this one. Um, but yeah, it's just, 
it makes you realize like God, we could talk like that. We're capable of such beauty and such creativity and such depth. Language is so incredible. And we just are so lame and boring so often how we talk and communicate. <laughs> Emojis. Yes. Gifts. Oh, there's a particular genius there. All right. Hey, well, we're here to talk about Mark. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of Irish. great language. Yeah, and- speaking of great language, excellent storyteller, high drama. Mm. Mark, the latter half of chapter eight has all of that. It is in the words of many a person, but our friend Jim Edwards, who's increasingly just becoming like the third silent host on this podcast. This is a denouement, yes. which is that climactic not final, but like a climactic point. Actually, do you know the definition of denouement? No. Oh, wow. I didn't go look it up. We're going to have to look it up. Um, but it really is. I mean, this moment is at the midpoint of the gospel. It is literally the highest point north recorded in all of Jesus's journeying with the disciples in the gospel of Mark. So here we are at the high point. And from this moment forward, Jesus is only going to be descending Mm. further and further south towards Jerusalem. Well, actually, ironically, next year in January, the opening passage is Jesus going up on uh, presumably Mount Tabor, uh, up on that high point. But here geographically, though, you know, just in terms of cities, he's at his high point. He's at, we're at the top. Caesarea Philippi. Yeah. Well, is, it, is it Mount Tabor or is it Mount Hermon? There is the debate. Oh. It is when we'll have to, well, maybe we'll have to debate. Maybe next year we can debate the the case for both. Okay. That, that could be That could be fun. Uh, by the way, I, great stalling. I did look up the denouement, yeah. which is a French word. And it is the final resolution of the intricacies of a plot as of a drama or novel. It's also the place in the plot at which... This occurs, occurs, the outcome or resolution of a doubtful series of occurrences. Um, so it's a clarification or resolution, which would make sense because this is the place where, at least in the human drama, Jesus's true identity is named for the first time. Yeah. In a particularly intense scene with Peter that we'll get to in a little bit. Um, I want to circle back and before we get there... And ask you just, hey, Pastor Ryan, Pastor's heart, is there anything that caught your heart or your mind, you know, um, that you want to share as an encouragement, rebuke, observation? Rebuke. Hey, you're allowed to, Well, we're here now that you asked. There's been some rebukes I have for you. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) This will get awkward. All right, bring them on, man. That's what it means to be in covenant community. If we're not speaking truth. I rebuke thy handsomeness. Oh, dear. (laughs) Diary, my self-esteem just went up a little bit. (laughs) Uh, Well... I very intentionally have leaned into the Fisher of People theme uh, in the way that we engage the the, the Mark series, because the, the 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 theme of the Mark series has been around what does it mean to follow Jesus. So there's a lot of different major themes or arteries or highways that go through Mark, but I've really really wanted to stay on the di- what it means to be a disciple and the Fisher of People is one of the ways in which Jesus defines what it means to be a disciple. And so throughout the entire fall, I've really been leaning into giving calls to faith and wanting to really make sure that is a really normalized part of the way we gather as a community. Oh, this last weekend, I had, it was amazing to watch people coming to faith. And, you know, I, I can imagine that people just see hands raised and don't really know what's going on. And uh, it's not always easy to really maybe believe that anything significant is happening. Maybe we can get cynical. Ah, who knows? Easy believism, easy decisionism. But is anything really happening? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a couple of stories that really struck me. Number one, I just want to report a really cool story of a father who came to faith through Alpha. And his son, just this week weekend on Sunday, made a decision in, to, to stand for Jesus. Um so exciting. I got to pray with him after service. This is somebody that I went on a walk with the week before. And 
you know, when I was talking to him about what's inspiring him to draw near to Jesus, he had to say it was just seeing the joy, a real genuine mm. joy, something new. He hasn't seen in his dad like this before that really has drawn him to God. Which reminds me a lot of C.S. Lewis. I've been listening, reading the, the great divorce. He says, anyone who genuinely seeks true joy will find their way. Mm. They only have but to seek and they will find to knock and the door will be open to them. Fascinating argument that he makes about heaven and hell, but that's another time. Uh, then secondly, just another great story was a mother who, a, wo- a woman came to church in the morning service, made a decision of faith. And, um, and came back Sunday night and invited her daughter and her daughter made a decision. And in both cases, uh, Jen got to pray with them. So in the morning, the mother went up to Jen all and Jen all prayed with her and just helped her make sense of what God was doing in her heart and pray with her to just, you know, really, I think deepen the decision. And then the same thing happened Sunday night. She came up with her daughter to Jen once again. Oh, it's just so rad. That we're a community where people who are, who are far from God feel safe to come and renew their relation with God or seek God and get to know God is really, really awesome. I think mm-hmm. that's very Jesus and very encouraging to me. Yeah, it is, particularly in a cultural moment where it feels like the the inertia um, is tempting us towards circling the wagon towards, you know, further polarization towards a combative posture towards culture um, or towards people of different, different viewpoints, you know, religious traditions. Um, And you you even see this within the church. I feel like there's just, I mean, there's lots of finger pointing and um, all that to say it, a cultural moment that, doesn't immediately connote to me uh, a safe space for curiosity, um, you know, uh, a place where you can come where you're at. And so I think that increasingly, you know, it, it makes me actually, Ryan, immediately think uh, one of one of my favorite faith heroes is St. Patrick. Speak, hey, actually. Hey, bring, didn't St. Even- Patrick. Didn't even mean to bring it full circle. Uh, um, this is totally unplanned, but yeah. So um, studying St. Patrick and Celtic spirituality at, when I was at Fuller, I took like a little, a class called um, St. Patrick and Celtic Christianity and uh, which is a fascinating area of study and how the Irish save civilization is uh, a book that I'm sure a lot of people have heard about, but one of the key hallmarks of the the Irish and the Celtic church and spirituality that was very distinct and different that from the Roman counterpart. Now, Roman Christianity, of course, we know ends up kind of winning out um, and comes to define, I mean, Roman Catholicism comes to kind of define uh, Western Christianity. Yeah, but, really kind of led, spearheaded by, I think, Augustine's theology. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But one of, so one of the unique things in the context of Ireland is... It was a, it was a really spiritual culture uh, during that time, but it was very tribal. And Patrick and his merry band of followers, one of the, they would come to uh, they would come to you know whatever village, and they would start basically setting up a community, a Christian community, right next to the existing one, and they would try and basically practice radical generosity and hospitality and try and like serve and bless. Um, but also the key, one of their, their key insights was they were like, Hey, you have to create a space where people can belong before they are asked to believe, which is actually, which is basically diametrically opposite of what it ended up becoming and what the church is largely known for. It's like, Hey, this is a, this is an exclusive club where, you know, um, until with, you know, hands crossed and eyes closed, heads bowed or whatever you, you know, um, you accept the articles of faith. Like you, you don't belong. Um, you think about Roman Catholic church, you can't take communion unless you're baptized, um, you know, in the Catholic church. So we ended up setting up a lot of barriers historically to people coming to know Jesus and churches, unfortunately became known oftentimes not as places where, spiritual curiosity was encouraged and where people 
um, who didn't know Jesus, but were hungry for him, could be welcomed and not judged. And that's one thing I've actually really love about our church's DNA and history in the Calvary Chapel movement. You know, I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, our church in a lot of ways may not look like the Calvary Chapel of Calvary chapels of old, but uh, I think that's something that was really a reason why it became a movement is because, you know, Chuck was willing to rip out the carpets. Right. And yeah. to say like, Hey, cool. You're, you know, you get the long hair and you're the hippie and you're, you're smoking pot or whatever. Come on in if you're curious to learn about Jesus. So right. I'm encouraged too to hear that there's, uh, that there genuinely, there, there are people, uh, it feels like almost every week in some capacity who are coming and who are not already card carrying Christians. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for suffering my mm. mini ser- uh, lecture on Celtic spirituality. Beautiful little sermonette. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, hey, let's dive into a little bit deeper into a couple of the interesting, man, this text has a lot, has so much, and you could only get to so, you know, so little of it. So much. So um, little. Well, before I ask you any question, is there anything that just immediately jumps out that you are like, man, this is something I didn't get to that I want to talk about. If not, then I, I've got, I've got a couple ideas of directions we can go. Uh, you know, there's a lot, I don't know. There's so much Mimi, the one of the ones that, uh, the first one that grabs me is, uh, just the nature of the double healing mm. and the, the way, you know, it's a historical event, but it also has this literary device attached to it. I, I impacted a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there was even one service where I kind of played it out to its full extent, but in most of the services, I didn't. And uh, so there's that one. Okay, let's dive into that then. The, do- the double healing. What I was fascinated by that as well, because I feel like there's a number of different layers to it. So what's something uh, that, that you love about that that you didn't get to in the sermon? Well, it's a, it's, it's a very intentional and very clearly present pattern in Mark's gospel. And I just love paying attention to the intricacies of of different books of the Bible and their their literary intricacies because they're inspired and they have like this missional intent and purpose, this theological purpose, but they're also this beautiful work of art too. And I just love the structure and the the detail of these these pieces of literature. Mm. So in Mark, there's a lot of these little doublets or these little double takes, whatever you want to call them. And, um, so when you see Jesus heal this person twice, it's a curiosity because you don't ever see Jesus have to do that. But immediately it makes me think of the different ways you see Jesus having to do things multiple times. And, um, well, one, you know, there's definitely the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000. There is, um, which is actually to me, one of the more significant ones and the crossing over the sea of Galilee and the storm and the disciples caught in it. Mm Mm-hmm. And what I find fascinating about it is that it happens twice is really important because earlier in Mark, they're going on their way to Bethsaida, but because they get into the storm and they fail to recognize him, they don't end up in Bethsaida. Mm -hmm. They actually kind of do a U-turn. It's almost as if Jesus is like, you're not ready yet. When he walks on the water. And he reveals himself. The disciples don't recognize him. And he's like, yeah, you don't get it. So they don't go to Bethsaida. And what happened? What's the significance of Bethsaida? Bethsaida is the landing place from which they march on to Caesarea Philippi, where they make the confession of Christ. They, they you know, they acknowledge his, his, his Messiahship. And one theory is that Jesus was taking them there. Mm. And he's like, oh, you are not ready, which is why he kind of rebukes them. He's like, do you still not understand? Because mm-hmm. he's been wanting to get them there and they've just been slow to understand who he is. But the significance of the double take, uh, I think is, I think it touches on the theme of discipleship and in particular repentance. And I think that's what repentance is. It's the ability, it's the willingness to think again about something. I have an opinion about something and I'm going to repent and take another look at something to get a new perspective. That's how I've looked at it. But you do see Mark very intentionally with these moments where Jesus has to do things twice. And yet in both cases, 
in the in the feeding stories and in the boat stories, in both stories, they don't understand. They don't get it. Mm-hmm. But then there's the largest structure of Mark that this is relevant for. So when the, he heals the man and he doesn't see clearly, he it really is sort of representing the moment they're about to have with Jesus where Peter says, you're the Christ. So Peter sees, you're the Christ. He's like, yes, he's got it. But then just like the blind man, he doesn't see clearly. Mm-hmm. And so the second half of Mark is that second touch on Peter and the disciples' lives to really understand who he is as the Messiah mm. and to free them from the false expectations that they have about what it means that he is a Messiah, sort of like, you know, all of the false notions of his Messiahship um, that the Jews had accumulated over the hundreds of years that uh, they needed to be free from. Mm. So those are my takes on it and very intentional by Mark. And uh, just another really intricate curiosity about the way he writes his story. Hmm. Well, I love the way that you, what I, what I hear you saying in that, that it, it serves, um, it serves a number of different purposes and it, it reveals and speaks to the way that the disciples are, they perceive, obviously they, they first encounter Jesus. They, they respond to the call and to the, the power and authority of who he is and they, they follow him. But like up to this point, that first year, if we have to describe the disciples, they, I, I love this because I see, uh, I see my, my, myself in them, in some of their bullheadedness, you know, they're constantly getting in the way. They're constantly misunderstanding. They're constantly misinterpreting. They're constantly doubting They're you know, like he's just, and, and Jesus is kind of patiently meeting them where they're, they're at. But so this three, this kind of movement from ignorance to misunderstanding to full understanding is just, uh, it, it normalizes part of the discipleship process where, uh, and so, f- which I, I think is, is really beautiful, but that the doublet and the repetition, like you said, this second half, it, I, I never thought of it as the, like, this is that moment where the final veil is kind of being pulled back where up until this point, the disciples and us as the readers in many, in many ways uh, are, are like the blind man because we only partially see, we see people walking around looking like trees and the second half of Jesus is going to bring into full, the second half of Mark is going to bring into full clarity who Jesus is. Um, I know personally when I was re- reading it and sitting with the text, I absolutely, I mean, I laughed out loud. I'm like, this has got to be one of my favorite like lines in scripture. Uh, and one of my favorite scenes, J- Jesus spitting on the man's eyes, putting his hands on him. So once again, we <laughs> yeah. have that Jesus, the space invader from last week. Yes. Um, and I, I'm so curious. Like, I want to know, I, I want, and I didn't have time to do more digging, but I want to know like, dude, what's the deal with spitting, uh, and I wish I could understand what's going on in Jesus's mind there a little bit, but it's really curious that he asks him this question afterwards. Like, do you, you know, like, do you see anything? I mean, just that interaction up, up until this point, all of Jesus's healings has been without question. You know, he's like, if he said it, it's done. And so why in this one, is it progressive? Um, and well, it's a lot like the conver- it's a parallel to the conversation with the disciples. Yes, absolutely. So he goes, do you see anything in verse 23? And then it's paralleled by verse 29. Who do you say I am? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, when I was thinking about the blind man, I just, I love, I love him. I love this guy. I don't know why. That's far for me. The, the, this man and his response, I see people, they look like trees walking around. For some reason, he just grips my mind and my heart. Like he's one of my favorite characters in the entire gospel thus far. Yeah. Um, and I think in some ways, because like, dude, like, like trees walking, who told him about trees? Like he had some conception of what they were people, you know, living your life yeah. as a blind man, you're having people describe reality to you or you're having to well, he may not have been blind from birth. True. Well, that's, that's possible. True. I didn't think about that. That's not as fun, but that's totally, <laughs> that's totally possible. 
Um, but did I pop your balloon? No, no, you didn't. You didn't pop my balloon. This is going to be a, a real stretch. Okay, so I'm just gonna t- I'm gonna riff here for a second and tell you what came to mind. Like the the weird little bunny trail that my mind went down when I read this and I was thinking about it and I was like, his first attempt at seeing it's it's more so like he's seeing with his imagination. So he's seeing with his he's seeing um. Yeah, he's seeing with his imagination and his heart more than he is seeing with his eyes and quote unquote, like objective reality, logical reality. So this is like, I see people, but they're like trees walking around. And one of the things that really like captured my mind, there's, I remember when I was at Fuller, I was studying attachment theory for a paper and there's this line that jumped out to me in my research that they figured out that you know, um, in the development of humans, fantasy precedes rational thought. Which makes perfect sense if you think about it. Well, like, that that would also go to the disciples in the sea, in the storm. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what they saw first? Oh, ghost. Ghost. Right. <gasps> yes. Yeah. They, see ghost, they, go, they go superstition or fantasy or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. something. Which, so why is that important? What, um, we place so much, we place so much um, emphasis on the rational, logical, that's, it's so often the obstacle to faith in Jesus is like, well, I just don't know. I don't feel like I know enough, um, to, to believe when it just kind of, to me, it reveals in certain ways, the fact that, um, underneath, like underneath a lot of our rationality, uh, we're actually being driven and motivated by, um, deeper, heart level stuff by superstition, by imagination. And, uh, this picture of this guy looking at the world and seeing walking trees. Um, I, I don't know why I love it. I was, I was trying to talk to see if I could discover why I thought it was so cool, but, um, it just, it, it invites me into the story in a way that I particularly appreciate. Well, I love what you were saying earlier, Joseph, that there's a process to discipleship and nothing like the gospels really communicates that. Mm-hmm. It just shows you there's a, a process for this man in this moment. It's a microcosm, right? It's in yes. one little moment. It's kind of representative of the larger process that the disciples are in to really fully wrap their mind around who Jesus is. There's a couple of things about that that's so beautiful. One I'm an evangelist unabashedly. And one thing I just don't can't stand is the sort of cynicism about decision, faith decisions that people make, because I think the assumption is they don't understand what they're getting themselves into. I'm like, but who does? (laughs) I mean, do we, when do we fully get it? When you look at the disciples, they decide to follow Jesus. I'm with you. Even here, he's like, you're the Christ, but they don't even know what they're talking about. Right. They've got some mustard seed idea. And I think that's what happens for people when they make faith decisions. I think it's a beginning point or it's a, not even a beginning point, but it's a threshold that is the culmination of other moments that have built up to that moment. And now they're at a threshold where there's a new level of faith that's going to grow. And I just love that we don't have to have it all figured out to take a step of faith. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we're willing to just open our hearts to what our faith allows us to receive in that moment, that's like enough. Mm. And to step into it and allow God to build it out for us. I think when we're making decisions where we can't see how it's all going to play out, especially like in discernment, when you're making a discernment process and you're trying to figure out what's the right decision, you know, the danger, the trap is trying to lay out, anticipate in our mind a full progression of how it's all going to cause and effect layout. Yeah. Versus like, okay, I don't know how it's going to end. I'm going to take this step right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to let God unfold it to me. And you don't see Jesus, um, you don't see Jesus frustrated with this guy. Mm-hmm. Or at least you see him patient enough to continue to heal him. And I think you made that point earlier about the Jesus in his posture. He's so... Yeah, at times I think he's legitimately frustrated here. He's upset, but that's different. Um, but he's willing to hang in there with them and walk them with them through their misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Which is such grace for, uh, and I think that's, you reminded me of some of what I really loved about this, this, the nature of the progressive revelation and the progressive deepening of uh, the faith 
made possible by sight, the insight into, hey, the, my own inner workings, what are the things that are clouding my vision, um, insight into who Jesus is, or to, like you said, yeah, wisdom or discernment about a given situation. But um, yeah, great kindness or patience for when we don't see clearly. I mean, Jesus has been demonstrating a lot of that patience with the disciples, like we said, for this this first year. We hit we hit a breaking point a little bit later in the text here, but um, I know uh, a lot of when I see people wrestling with shame, oftentimes it's because they like they know better in some capacity, but they still mess up. And they then have little grace for themselves, which is so unlike Jesus. Jesus like gently restores people. That's his kind of his primary way of, of moving mm. and, and working. And so this passage is something that it's like, Hey, yeah, if you don't understand completely, if you don't see clearly, that's fine. Jesus like there, Jesus will have another touch for you. Last time we saw Jesus encountering uh, a man and there is this visceral, we talked about Jesus, the space invader where he spits once again, he puts his fingers, yep. you know, he touches his tongue, puts his fingers in his ears and everything. Um, but here he puts, lays, lays hands on the man's eyes and his sight was restored. And he makes, so Mark makes mention of it twice. He puts his hands on him in verse 23. And then in verse 25, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. And so it just got me curious, like, Hey, this, the ministry of laying on of hands, like, I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit more. Um, I know in the old Testament, there's three pr- predominant places or three different t- like reasons why laying on of hands is mentioned. One of them is in, um, blessing or s- like sanctifying, uh, offerings unto God. One of them is the installation of priests. And one of them is, um, is in blessing, uh, so there's like an Old Testament precedent to this, but do you think that there's still power in laying on of hands? I do, and I think it's like because we're human beings and we, we will forever be spirit and body mm. integrated together in eternity, which maybe sometimes people forget in, we'll have, in the resurrection we'll have a new body, mm. that um, there's, something about, there's something powerful about touch in itself. I've read one book about healing, and the writer was talking about how just the laying on of hands, every mother knows just the soothing power of a hand, of a mother's hand on a child. I felt it when I'm like feeling stomach pain or my stomach is upset. My wife will just rub my stomach and pray for me. Mm. There's something about touch that is soothing, comforting, um, and that's it's powerful. So I think it's certainly on another level, it's... Um, I, there's something about the way that God allows our physical life to activate and alert us to spiritual reality and truth. Mm. And so all along the gospel, when Jesus is healing people, very physical things, he wants to heal people. But in all of these moments, he's he wants to communicate his heart to people. Yeah, I want to I heal you, but we saw it with the paralyzed man. But I, I want to forgive you. Mm. I want to restore our relationship to each other. I want you home. And um, I think that physical touch, has uh, it awakens, I think, spiritual awareness, which is why in the weekend services, sometimes I'll have us lay a hand on someone's shoulder to represent the hand of God on their life. It sort of activates our, our spiritual senses in a way, I think. Um, but then and that's why there's so much, that gets into like a sort of a sacramental view of reality, mm-hmm. you know, that God has uh, imbued his, spiritual reality into physical form and the physical form is meant to sort of awaken us to spiritual truth. Um, but then I think also it speaks to just the heart of God that it's a, Jesus is personal and it's such a personal and intimate scene. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think Jesus's death is so physical that God came down and embraced us so physically. It certainly shows us something about God and his love. There's all I could go on and talk about, you know, this the power of touch as parents with our children, like hugging our children, hugging our spouse, you know, putting a hand on a shoulder of encouragement, kissing on the cheek, express physical expressions of affection are so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but certainly it speaks of the personal side of Jesus and the way that he saves us mm-hmm. through through personal relationship and to be in a personal relationship with him. That's what gets me. Because mm-hmm. when I picture Jesus, whenever I'm praying, it's always very physical. Like I have a, a series of recurring images that I have when I picture Jesus and I'm in prayer and I'm practicing holy imagination. I see Jesus sometimes in a river with a, his left hand extended, grabbing me by my right hand and leading me out into the water. And I'm so encouraged when I was reading this, like, oh, look at how he takes the man by the hand and leads mm-hmm. him out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other images where I have where Jesus puts his, his hands on my shoulder. I have other moments in prayer where the image that just comes to me is Jesus hugging me. Um, I, I, Yeah, so I think there's power in it. Jesus doesn't need a touch to heal. We've already seen that. He mm-hmm. delivers the Syrophoenician woman's daughter from a distance, but touches, it's personal. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like the power of touch to break down like the dividing walls of hostility or of separation, a loving touch. You know, I think, I think about, uh, well, the counterpoint, just yeah. look at how damaging, unhealthy, ungodly, or, uh, unloving touch can be. Mm-hmm. And that's, it maybe even comes to the listener's mind of using the word touch in our day and age, touch can have mixed connotations. Totally. But think about that. Just the power of touch can be so damaging. Mm-hmm. And that's just the enemy hijacking a grace and a gift of God for his own purposes. But it really its intent, it, its original design was for blessing. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I'm probably, I'm going to attribute this to Nick Gilmer because it sound it, it feels like an, a Nickism, but um, I know I've heard this elsewhere also like, you know, to, to, to thrive and to flirt, like we need at least seven positive physical touches a day to basically just kind of be neutral and we need really to thrive or to flourish. We need like, I mean, 16 to 18 or something like that, but most people don't get that. And I think about one thing I, when I think about our culture and compare it to, you know, like what I've seen in travels in Latin America or different parts of Europe or Africa or whatnot, you know, where, where, um, positive physical affection between it is much more of a cultural thing. You know, there's kisses on the cheek or there's, um, you know, like holding of hands or different stuff like that. We're not, it, yeah, for some reason in, in our culture, I feel like we're, we're separated from each other often. Um, and perhaps to our detriment. So I, I definitely know, just to answer my own question really quickly, the laying on of hands, some of the most uh, profound moments of being ministered to by people and of experiencing uh, a sense of healing, a sense of freedom on a variety of different levels have come um, through the ministry of touch, you know, like of, of people yeah, of laying hands on me and and praying and it's uh yeah i don't i couldn't imagine my spiritual journey without some of that yeah absolutely um and so it's a practice that you see extended into the early church in the new testament there's the laying on of hands if i were to go to the old testament i would argue for the strongest old testament precedent would be um uh, the blessing, you know, the, it was usually when you see people blessing people in the Old Testament, there's there's a laying on of a hand in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, the the other thing to go along with the touch and the healing is the spitting. Can, we, can I throw you a crazy, funny thought I had about it? Please, please. This is this is speculation at its highest level. <laughs> Let's go to the to the pinnacle of speculative thinking. So, warning. <laughs> But the spitting in the face is pretty strong here. So mm-hmm. the other one, it's softened because he spits in the dirt. Yeah. This one, he goes, he spit on the man's eyes. This is direct. Mm-hmm. I, I just, in all my, I, I did some looking up on it and it's sort of unprecedented. It's like, well, there was spittle involved in other healing practices that you can mm-hmm. kind of see in these old ancient documents and it's a little bit obscure, but that's a little weird. Okay. 
it looks offensive to me. Totally. Now, here's my parallel. Because we're paralleling this healing to what's going on with Peter. I can't help but wonder if the spitting in the man's eye is, is, is meant to feel offensive. And why would it be? Because I wonder if the experience of God's healing in our life feels offensive at first. Ooh. And so if you were to say, where is that in the passage? I would say with the rebuke of Peter. When Peter speaks falsely about Jesus, what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. It says in the Bible, better an open rebuke than a hidden love. A rebuke can feel offensive and it can feel jarring. And But when he says rebukes him, he says, get behind me, Satan. He doesn't mean it to be offensive. He means it to be healing. Mm. And he means it to be clarifying. He means it to be an act of cleansing for Peter so that he can see clearly that the cross is not a mistake, an aberration, but it is indeed the way forward. So I think when the Lord comes into our life to reveal his truth to us, it often does feel offensive. Mm. It rarely feels like good news at first. What are you saying? I have sin? What are you saying? Jesus is the only way? My son just had an experience where his friend who he's been sharing Jesus with goes, so do you think I'm going to hell? It it rarely feels like good news right away. Mm. It's not uncommon for it to feel offensive. And so that's my take. I like that. It also maps onto, I mean, you know, the Syrophoenician woman, and there's that offense that happens there. Jesus's offense in certain ways that he offers her when he claims, you know, when he talks about the children and the dogs and, and she comes back with the crumbs, you know, and he, uh, yeah. and, and he, he then responds by or when he heals the man on the Sabbath and offends the religious leaders. Yes. Yeah. So it's real. That is really interesting. I've never actually heard that before, but I, I, I like that, especially as you're connecting it, because it's it is within the same pericope. To use a fancy word, the same like body of text. There, you know, they 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 seem intentionally connected in certain ways, and so that element of of offense. Uh, so often we've we've talked about this off many times throughout the podcast. But hey, what's a what does faith look like? Faith looks like. You mentioned it this this weekend, uh, humility being a hallmark of a disciple, lifelong learning being the hallmark of a disciple. Um, we, yeah, we all want to be PhDs, dude. Yeah, right? We don't want to be students. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have arrived. Uh-huh. Come on, come on. Totally. I have arrived. We talked, we talked about how curiosity is the, um, is, yeah, like, hey, are you open? Are you going to be willing to get curious rather than get offended? Yeah. Oh, oh now we're going. Now we're now we're on a train. Because okay. don't you remember when he went in? Now I remember when he went into his hometown. Right. And he came in to heal, and they were all offended. And it says he could only heal a few people. Yes. That is the most explicit mentioning of offense. Uh huh. And he's disappointed by their hardness of heart. Yeah. So that it, it is yeah. possible now. Oh. 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 Hey. Come on, dude. We're cooking with gas now. Um, so this is in the context of Bethsaida, which previously we learned was a place that, once again, um, there is a, there's an amount of doubt and there is resistance that he encountered encountered On earlier. the way there the first time. Yeah. Well, on the way there, but then also... Um, oh, man. I It was in my reading. Edwards mentions it. Which, by the way, while he's looking, Bethsaida is house means house of the fisher. Oh, house of the fisher. Which to me just makes me think of fishers of people, but again, just left that by the side. The nice thing is that I can always go back and check out this. Oh, I just saw the house of the fisher one. Well, clearly, okay, you know what the theme of the offense is actually stronger than I originally gave it credit for. As I really sit and look at it, I mean, what Jesus just said about his death on the cross is so offensive. Peter uncharacteristically rebukes him. I mean, he's never going to do this in all the rest of the gospel. Right. He does argue with Jesus elsewhere, which, by the way, is not totally outside of the way a lot of God's favorite people have interacted with him, (laughs) Jacob the wrestler. But he rebukes Jesus. I mean, he is clearly offended because it is such an offense to the the 
prevailing expectations of the Messiah mm-hmm. that I, I actually think it was, it's a much stronger case now than ever that Jesus is using it as a parable to teach because he takes him outside the, it says here he took the man aside outside the village, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean, necessarily mean they're alone. Yeah, we're not told explicitly that Jesus desires to be alone with him, but he does want to be outside of the village. So well, probably I did, the I disciples did, are with him. That's my guess. Yeah, I did. And they're watching the whole thing. Um, Edwards points us towards um, six four, chapter six, verse forty-five, as he says, although he does desire to separate him from the village, perhaps because of its unbelief. Yeah. Um, yeah, which he does with Jairus' daughter as well, and the in those the crowd of mourners. Yeah, the number of men, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Oh, yeah, this is, they're trying to get there. Which huh. doesn't make total sense to me, yeah, because yeah, if people yep. have enough faith to bring him to Jesus, why would he need to take him away? I don't know. Um, that one's a, the why he goes aside is a definite curiosity. I just definitely see a link in its similarity of form to the deaf and mute. And it kind of ties them together mm-hmm. as two things having a, a, a similar purpose. Mm-hmm. But I think that the spitting as a representative of the offense that his healing work is, is actually there's stronger biblical ground for that. I th- In the next half of Mark, he's going to talk about blessed are those who are not offended. Mm-hmm. And he's going to talk about the cornerstone that, ca- the, that causes some to stumble. Yeah. Well, and think about the uh, the lame man, the man who'd been lame since birth or 30 years or whatnot, when at the uh, the pool of Bethesda where he asks him, do you want to be well? Yeah. Like that's, I mean, <laughs> talk about an offensive question. <laughs> yeah. it, it it almost seems in a, which is the question that that you know, Jesus is asking each of us in a very, in a variety of different ways. Like, Hey, I mean, do you like, do you really want to be well? Um, it's, it does seem a little bit like, Hey, is, is offense woven into as a litmus test to, to reveal the state of our heart and whether or not we're going to be capable of receiving yeah. what is, what is the necessary healing work? Um, I like it, dude. Well, there you go. It, I, uh, no, I, we talk it through. It has a little bit more merit than I would have originally thought. Okay, let's keep trucking through the through because there's there's some um, a couple more interesting things that I think we should touch on. And one, okay, there's we see an interesting. This whole scene is fascinating. Jesus's interactions with his disciples, but we see in it the two stage questions, uh, two stages of questioning from. Jesus, as they're on the way, he asks them, like, well, who do people say that I am? And then, who do you say, say that I am? What do you make of that? Well, it certainly, biblically, textually, it goes back to Herod's um, guessing game about Jesus. <clears throat> it captures the prevailing, what I appreciate about it, is it does capture for us how people were making sense of Jesus. Mm. And uh, I think at this point, it's fascinating that uh, what's that the Messiah is not in that list. I think as high as the expectations were of the Messiah, it's fascinating that that's not there. Mm. But why would he do that as a as a as a teacher, as a rabbi? Why would he take him through that process? I can't. My only guess is is to differentiate them to to bring them face-to-face with the prevailing views of him and then to press them to make their own choice and their own decision mm. for themselves and not to rely on what they hear other people saying. Mm-hmm. But I think it, well, and I highlighted the message this last weekend. I think that the scripture, it's an evangelical emphasis of decision-making, but I think it's biblical. I think the scriptures really do point to the need to make a decision and I think often our decision requires us to differentiate against what other people are saying. Even if what they're saying is true, we have to make a decision based on our own faith, not on the faith of our parents or the faith of our pastor, but because we ourselves, like Jacob, have wrestled with the Lord. 
and um, see that he is our God, not just the God of our father, but our God. Well, what do you think? I think every spiritual master, every spiritual teacher, every wise person that I have, uh, that I've really ever studied, read, listened to, been in actual relationship with, they, they use questions more than they pontificate. Um, and I think that you already touched on it. I mean, why? Well, it's easy to listen passively. You can't answer passively. You know, you can't give, you can't, it's, it's evident immediately if you're asked a question, especially like that, who do you say, who do you think that I am? Um, you, the state of your heart, where you're at will immediately be kind of vulnerably laid bare. And so, yeah, I, I mean, part of me, I just, I just see Jesus being, uh, a, a good shepherd and understanding, Hey, we're at a turning point. Um, I know that I'm, I'm on the way to the cross. I know, uh, the purpose that I've, I've come for, and it's time for you guys to cross a, a particular threshold. And so in, in a lot of ways, he's inviting them to that. But yeah, I think that, I, I think that probably the, the best reading of it is the one that you've already outlined that, each of us, faith comes to a point where we have to be able to articulate it ourselves. We have to be able to um, risk that and that element of risk, that element of exposure, that element of declaration of claiming what it is that we we believe to be true. Um, wherever we're at with it is just, uh, it's irreducible from being a follower of Jesus, but also just being a person. I really don't have anything to say there. I lost the thread. <laughs> <laughs> Note edit. <laughs> um, what I'd like, what it does bring up, and what we could have, we could also highlight is the theme of Jesus's question asking, the prevalence of his questions, mm-hmm. and uh, what I love about it is, I love it for us as a church to be asking questions and. I think of it as a father asking questions of my kids. I think trying to ask them questions about what they believe. They, and I can tell when they have to give, when they're on the spot to give an answer, to give a response, I can see their brains working. When this kid, when my son's friend asked him, do you think I'm going to hell? Like I've talked about that with my son many times, but when he's on the spot mm-hmm. and someone's asking him, it hits him differently. He's like, gosh, I didn't know what, how to respond to that. And it was so awkward. And we had a great conversation about responding to those types of questions. Uh, but I said, it makes sense because until you're asked by a friend, it's not going to hit you the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're, I, I think what you said earlier, it makes a lot of sense too. It's, it's, it's a powerful way though of teaching, helping our kids own their faith, not just preaching at them, but asking them questions. Don't you agree? In my extensive experience as a father, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> ask me again in a hand, ask me again in 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, man, we've gotten to the climactic moment where he's, uh, he's asked the question and Peter finally says, you are the Messiah. And we get the messianic secret again. We get the, the, a command to silence the warn them not to tell anyone about him. And then he begins to teach them something that they really don't want to hear that leads Peter to the rebuke, um, which is that the way of Jesus is not the way of uh, power over. It's not the, the power of the scribes and the Pharisees or of Herod that we've seen before. It's uh, the power of suffering love. It's, it's the power of taking onto and into himself the pain, brokenness uh, of of the world, which is really disappointing to his his disciples uh, then, and I think honestly really disappointing to a lot of disciples now, because the natural tendency that we all have is we want 
Um, we want our view and our value set to be the ascendant one. Yeah. To be the one that dictates the agenda. And it's, it's really hard when the, I mean, Jesus's example really rebukes that and calls that into question. So you want to talk about, and we already talked about rebuke some, um, but anything that you left on the cutting room floor that you didn't get to in this exchange with him and with, with Peter and uh, that pretty stern get behind me, Satan. Gosh, that scene. I mean, we, you, it's just, um, it is an absolutely stunning moment. It's so shocking when you get there because you haven't heard Satan mentioned for a little while. And then all of a sudden he, you hear him mention, and it's like, whoa, in Peter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so much to draw on that, in my opinion, like so much to things that come to my mind. But there's like, what's going on for Peter? What is, and then what does it represent? What does it say to us as the people of God and as the church? Mm. Certainly um, for me, it says that um, we have to be careful and not lose the centrality of the cross in who we are as the people of God. And that I think it is because I think when we do that, the work of Satan is to tempt us and deceive us from uh, resisting the centrality of the cross as the defining mark of who we are as followers of Jesus. Mm. And I think that is what the second half of Mark is going to really start to drill into is what does that really mean? And it's going to be, it's so powerful the way that Jesus unpacks it chapter by chapter, building up to the cross. And um, I think we, you know, when you read Paul's letters, you get into, you know, crucifying the flesh. I think of Galatians 2.20, I'm memorizing that with my son right now. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Mm. Um, And I think that there's something in us that needs to be, that needs to die. I think the other thing that's fascinating is that when we think of Jesus dying, we think of it strictly in terms of what he, that, that the act of some, of doing something that we could never do for ourselves, right? Like his um, propitiating, expiating role on the cross that we could never fulfill, right? His atonement. But the other fascinating thing about this is clearly in this text the cross is something that Jesus does for us so that in turn we can do for him. So ultimately when Jesus dies on the cross, he does something for us that we could never do. And that's true, but it's, he's also giving us an example. And I think that is, that's, that is crazy. So he dies so that we can die. And to me, the idea of dying to self is got to be one of the most profound themes of my life as a disciple of Jesus. Hmm. And what exactly does Jesus want to put to death? I think in short, our will. I think the kingdom of God has come. And that is in Matthew's, if you were to take Matthew and to interpret that, it, the kingdom of God is God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want God's will to be done. Hmm. And uh, carrying our cross is allowing our will to be put to death so that the will of God can be birthed and reign in us. And I think it's fascinating to think of the Christian life as fundamentally, as as Bonhoeffer put it, a bid to come and die. Mm -hmm. And the deep resistance we have to that death, the putting to death of sinful habits, sinful ways of thinking, the ways in which our will drives our life. And what would be so cool is to just sit and reflect on, so what does God's will look like? Because it sounds so daunting, my will dying for God's will. That sounds mm-hmm. terrible. But when you stop and look at the gospel of Mark up to now and go, what does God's will look like? Because that's in fact what the kingdom of God is. It is the will of God being done in a moment on earth as it is in heaven. And so it is forgiveness. It is healing. It is restoration. It is bringing the outsiders in. It's faith. It's it's sacrificial love. Mm-hmm. It is generosity. It is supernatural power. That's the will of God. And when you think of it in those terms, wow, okay, that's not a bad trade. But it does not feel 
that easy. It's like being spit in the face, mm-hmm. right? It's like being insulted, be told that our will has to be crucified. And yet that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I'm going to die. So will you. You're going to join me. I can't imagine how the disciples conceived this, right? We, re- we read back on it with 2,000 years of meaning. Hmm. But in this moment, what did they know of the cross? They really just know these stories of people dragged out and crucified. So to them, it must have sounded like, okay, you just mean that we're going to fail? It's all going to, we're not going to win. You're not really the Messiah? I don't know. I wonder how they heard it, like what it meant to them. But I'll tell you one thing. They certainly missed the rising part. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Peter doesn't go, what, you're going to rise? Yes. You know, he's like, he's so, he just can't see past the death. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is so understandable. I mean, one of the things that's so... Even after he's raised the girl from the dead, even he's seen it. Totally. He's, yeah, he's, he's seen a power at work that subverts or that makes, you know, that, that renders impotent the greatest power that we all fear, which is, is death. And yeah, still has, still lacks the imagination to be able to really uh, grasp the, the power of Jesus's words there. I, I love, totally missed the rise part. <laughs> yeah, you can see Jesus. Wait, wait, wait. Did you hear what I said? I'm going to rise. Hello. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, but but see dude, Ryan, I don't want to have to suffer though. You know, yeah. which I always I think that's you know I agree with you that that death to self is probably one of the most radical aspects of the Christian faith and uh it's one of the most subversive and particularly right now, if you think about it, did we live in the wealthiest, uh, the most individualistic society uh, that the world has ever seen? We live in a time where the dominant narrative is that you are this radical individual who is, should express themselves and that that is where ultimate meaning is found. And so it, I mean, it's the antithesis, the gospel meaning the, the antithesis of that. It's like, well, hey, actually, actually, yep. if you <clears throat> actually that, that desire towards um, having your own self, your own ego, your own desires, your own fears, whatever it may be, you being the center of things is actually deeply unoriginal, uncreative. It's the, it's the kind of the default position of humanity in, in a very real way. Um, and, so to be, so the act of letting go of that uncreative, egotistical self, we, it's only then that we're able to receive a true self that's way more interesting. But it's, it's one of those crazy things that you can only experience it from the inside. You have to take that leap of faith. You know, I mean, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, the cross scorning its shame. So he, that's, that's part of the, like the good news of the Christian, uh, gospel is that not that you won't suffer. It's that, well, there, there's a God who will suffer alongside of you when you do that. There can always be meaning and purpose, um, found in the midst of suffering because it can drive you. It can open you to experiencing the reality of God, his tenderness, his love for you. Like the things that you mentioned, the peace that passes understanding in the midst of suffering. But more than that is that there's joy on the far side of it. But man, we are so often afraid of entering into the suffering of others, entering into our own suffering for fear that it's just, we're going to get stuck there. Um, that the the promise of resurrection, life, it, yeah, and joy on the far side is is an illusion. It's a mirage. It's just going to lure us into this masochistic, this self hating, this you know, like this uh, egoless space, um, and leave us there instead of bring us to the fullness of life. Yeah, that's ab- absolutely right, and. Uh... I think that's goes back. It's like a big spit in the face. <laughs> and I think it feels offensive. And, and now more than ever, let's say that you don't have, you really cannot define yourself. Your identity is not in your sexuality. It's not in your hobbies. It's not in your achievements. 
assigning your gender, it runs deeper. And God alone defines you and knows your identity and gives you identity. That is deeply offensive. And that we can't define ourselves by what feels right to us. I mean, a book by a great philosophical writer, Carl Truman, and he's kind of laying out the philosophical journey towards where we're at right now. Which, you know, in short, is just the idea that I define reality by what feels right to me, that what we feel is real. And um, so this is deeply offensive to that. And I think it goes back again to the spit in the face. Mm. I think that's, I think that's about right. But the promise nonetheless is held out for all who are willing to receive it. The promise is that you will rise. I think that's a good place to put a pin in it, getting spit in the face by Jesus with the promise of rising. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my friends, there it is. We're wrapping it up. Eight chapters of Mark. We are halfway through. And if you are, in fact, listening to us, I mentioned it last week, but this is, uh, we're taking a break for Christmas. Um, we, we just sat with Jesus, the adult Jesus, presumably 31 and a half years old at this point, or, you know, roughly thereabouts, uh, his identity as the Messiah being revealed. And we're going to take a pause and we're going to go back to baby Jesus to <laughs> Christmas. That's right. Uh, but we'll be back in January the with word the made flesh of, yeah with the rest of uh, our study in the gospel of Mark from there until Easter we're going to journey with Jesus on the way to the cross so we'll see you then thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the just follow Jesus podcast for more information about the series or our church, you can visit northcoastcalvarychapel.org. We also still have some copies of a special coffee table quality journal that we designed and put together to accompany this series in the Gospel of Mark. This whole podcast is a resource of North Coast Calvary Chapel. It's produced and directed by Joseph Carlson. The editing has been done by Nate King, and the music is by the one and only Brian McMaster. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.